Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Bill English, Artistic Director of San Francisco Playhouse, which is located at 450 Post Street in San Francisco. Bill English is also a director and has been an actor in the past. The current San Francisco Playhouse production is seared by Teresa Rebeck, playing through November 12th. Seared, it's a world premiere, and Teresa Rebeck was the power behind a major disaster on television called Smash. But, of course, she's also a major playwright as well. And you've done plays of hers before. We've done a couple, yeah. She's very popular. She's had four or five shows on Broadway. I wouldn't say Smash was a disaster in the first year. It actually had good ratings, and then they fired her, and it crashed. That's the story I've heard. Whatever falling out they had with her, I think the first season holds up pretty well. But she is also well-known as a playwright and commissioned the play from her. So it's a very, very big deal for us. It's certainly the commission we've had with our most prominent playwright. And it's about a chef going up against an investor? It's about a chef who's worked in a lot of big restaurants, and he's a great chef, very, very skillful, talented chef. He and a friend have started a little eight-table restaurant in a storefront in Brooklyn somewhere, just wanting to do something small, and they get a great review in The New Yorker, and the friend, the investor, wants to create a bigger restaurant and be more success on the basis of this review, and the chef resists, and... So that's basically the setup, and it's basically it's an art versus commerce kind of story, told with a lot of humor, though, as is Teresa's inclination. When did you get the script, and how many iterations did it take? We've had the script for six months or so. She took about a, over a year to write it. It's had a couple of uh, workshops and a couple of readings along the way, um, one in New York, one here. You know, she's been here with us just dashing off pages, you know. She's quick and a, and a great rewriter and, you know, so vastly more experienced than any of the playwrights we've worked with on world premieres so far. It's kind of a joy to just watch her crank out pages. And how does it work with the actors getting new, new words every day? How oh, they love it? it. They love it. That's part of the process. Actors love new plays. It really gives them a chance to be a real a participant because an actor has something to say about a new play. You know, they're creating the character for the first time and they're able to speak with the playwright about how it's going and what ideas they may have or about what things they don't understand. So actors have a great impact on world premieres. So they feel like they're in the thick of it. You know, it's a lot of fun for them. Bill English, before we get on to talking about last season and the coming season, I want to talk about this world premiere thing and what has been happening with it and why so many theater companies are now doing world premieres. Theater is a live art that happens in the moment. One of my college professors once told me that 
No play that was a classic, enduring classic, had ever not succeeded in its own time. So theater is always talking about the right now. And if we want theater to continue to be a powerful force for social change and social reflection and personal reflection into the future, we have to generate work that talks about the right now, that focuses on what it's like to be alive in our time. And so theater companies, I think, pretty much everywhere are continually trying to provoke and promote new work because the playwrights are sort of the prophets of our time. They're the people that have extra sensitive antenna and they're able to pull down information from their lives and from the lives around them, from the news, from all the things that are happening and condense that into a work of art which sort of mirrors ourself back to us. Is it also true that with Broadway having just become a receptacle for corporate musicals, the number of shows that might go from Broadway or even London spreading out from across the country may have dwindled a little bit too? I think that might be true. You know, we're always looking for the hot properties that were hits, mostly off-Broadway, but sometimes on-Broadway, and we get them sometimes. You know, in the last season, we had two really great, hot new properties, Stage Kiss and The Nether, were both fairly fresh out of New York theaters, and we were able to secure the West Coast premieres for both. But at the same time, you're also looking at world premieres. My problem with world premieres, though it seems to be less a problem at San Francisco Playhouse than at some of the other companies around the area, is that usually a show has to go through two or three iterations with different directors before it reaches that final finished product. And a world premiere is the first. Do these shows that have gone on, do they go through many changes? Or is what we're seeing at a world premiere at SF Playhouse pretty much where it's going to wind up? Well, absolutely. We do intend to move our plays forward. We have two world premieres that we did that we then moved to 5090's 59 Theater in New York City. That was Bauer by Lauren Gunderson and Ideation by Aaron Loeb. Now, Bauer went straight to the main stage, but it had two years of development. There were four workshops and four public readings with feedback and development, and it, it went through a lot of work. But at, at about the fourth reading, we had about 200 people in the audience, and they all stood up at the end and insisted to me personally, many of them, that we do that we do it in the main stage and not do it in the sandbox where it had originally been aimed. Ideation was developed over a period of, I think, a year with workshops and readings, and it went through the Playwrights Foundation where they did a, did a, a workshop of it. Then we did a reading and a workshop, and it was my sense that it it was good to do it in the sandbox. So we did a production in the sandbox, which subsequently was our totally sold-out run, and it then won the Will Glickman Award for Best New Play. So we moved it up to the main stage, mm-hmm. where we did a another run with more bells and whistles, with a real set. Then we were invited to move the show to New York. Ideation, for me, it's the picture postcard development scheme. Did it make any changes between San Francisco and New York? Absolutely. We went back into rehearsals for four weeks, and there were substantial rewrites. We worked on it every step of the way. We were 
working on that play final preview in New York City. Were any of the plays from last season, like Stage Kiss or The <laughs> Nether, did the playwright come out and work on those, or were those the same versions that had been seen before? No, those plays, once produced in New York, plays very, very seldom change, and the playwrights very seldom get involved, especially if they were as successful as those two plays were. You mm. know, That means New York is still kind of like the end point for, say, publishing a play and putting it out there for everyone. Unfortunately, perhaps, it seems like plays tend to make their way to New York, and thereupon they are either blessed or cursed by Ben Brantley and Charles Isherwood and have a life in the regional theaters subsequently on that basis. Mm. There are some plays and some playwrights that have kind of basically stayed out of New York and just get their plays done at the regional theaters. Um, We did a play last year in our sandbox on Clover Road by Stephen Dietz, and Stephen doesn't really take his shows to New York. And another playwright, Richard Dresser, we did a play of his called Trouble Cometh last season, and his plays all over the regions, but not really New York City. Why is that? I think they got some bad reviews early on and just decided that, that what happened is when you take a play to New York, if the whims of nature fall to you, yeah. you're great. You get a bunch of productions. But if you don't, then your play's dead. Whereas if you just stick to the regions, it never gets that opportunity to be cursed or blessed, and it can just it can ride more on its own merits, and that's a that's a good path, that's a good path too. I know one show that I and you that was originally done at Marin Theater Company was a Lauren Gunderson play, and it right. was a it was a Rolling World premiere, so it had three shows in that National New Play Network that we've done several of those Rolling World premieres, and I think it had nine or ten productions by the time it got to New York, where it did not get a particularly good review. But because it had been successful in the regions, it sustained its availability. In New York, it used to be that there were seven or eight major reviewers. Are we down to basically Grantley and Isherwood now? I think so. The New Yorker reviews, I think the Village Voice may still review, Time Out reviews, Wall Street Journal, Terry Teachout is a credible critic, There are others, but by and large, yes, it's sorry to say, much as it is here with the Chronicle. Let's talk first about the sandbox shows. There's one more coming up or two more coming up in the next season? No, there are two, actually. We've changed it from a two-play to a three-play series. Last season was our first three-play sandbox. The sandbox, for those of you who don't know, is a three-play series, bare bones, done in a smaller theater. Our theater's 250 seats, but the sandbox is usually done in 50 to 100 seats, and we keep the production value down. Simple, simple sets, costumes pulled from stock, props pulled from stock, uh, often the lighting set props costume sound designers are emerging artists themselves coming out of state or out of another college, so they're eager to get a resume, build their resume. So we keep the costs down, and so the sandbox serves as kind of a bridge between readings that everyone does and main stage productions, which cost a half a million dollars. So you know, the sandbox sits in there at somewhere around $25,000 for budget, and so it, it, it gives a lot of writers a chance to get produced who might never have been. This play we just finished, All of What You Love and None of What You Hate, this is his first production. And he's actually just gotten an MFA from Yale University in playwriting. So he's got some good credentials but hasn't as yet had a production. The next two are going to be You Mean to Do Me Harm by Christopher Chen 
Chris is a local playwright, has a show running at Shotgun. Chris has won the Will Glickman Award for Best New Play, and this is a, a world premiere commission of ours. We commissioned him to write this play. It's kind of an interesting project because he got an award from the Vineyard Theater in New York City about the same time as we commissioned him. And so I talked the artistic director and his agent, the artistic director of the Vineyard, into making it the same play. So consequently, the play has had development at the Vineyard Theater in New York and at our theater. So by the time it gets to the sandbox, it will already have had three substantial workshops. So when you're talking about development and workshops, quickly take us through the process of, say, that particular play from the moment that you find out you want someone to write it. I mean, how did that work? Well, it works a number of ways. I know lots of playwrights, and we have lots of conversations, and you know, I'm very generally interested in, in commissioning plays. Sometimes I'll have an idea, and the playwright will be interested in writing a play about it. We currently have our sort of resident playwright, Aaron Loeb, writing a new play, which came out of an idea of mine. Often the playwright will have their own idea. Bauer was an idea of ours, of San Francisco Playhouse, as Lauren Gunderson wrote it. Ideation was strictly uh, Aaron Loeb's idea. Someone has the idea, and then you say, okay, here's a little money so you, to tide you over and write it. Yeah, it's a commission agreement. There's a fee paid to the writer, usually in two or three installments, based upon a first draft, a second draft, and a third installment if you agree to produce it. So there's also built into the commission agreement is a, uh, what do you call it, like an option, which gives the commissioning theater company the first right of refusal to produce the play in their venue. And then also there are often uh, further options. So if the producing company succeeds, then they have the option to, say, move it to New York, which has happened in both the cases of our recent moves. We had that option and exercised it. So if you have a play, you like it. So then you do some kind of table read, right? Yep. Okay. And then you decide we're going to produce it or we're going to do a workshop. What's the difference between sandbox and a workshop? Well, a sandbox is a full production. Okay. It has designers. It has audience. It has a run. So and three, four shows, four shows per week for four weeks. It also has a longer rehearsal period. The actors learn their lines. And there's costumes and a director, a professional director, and the actors get paid. So it's a regular production. It's just a sort of a, a bare-bones production. And a workshop is just people standing around reading from a script? Absolutely. they sitting around sometimes. We sit around a table and we read it, and then we talk to the playwright. We ask questions. The playwright makes changes. We read it again. We discuss it. We break it down into beats, work on it as an acting thing. Playwrights continue to do revisions. Workshops often end in a public performance. Our workshops are generally 20 to 24 hours, all done during one week. And then at the end of the workshop, there is a reading to which we invite the public. After that, if it goes off well, then you start to consider, do I want it for the sandbox? Exactly. And then at that point, you decide, okay, this is cool, and we want to take it further to the main stage, or you're on your own, find someone else. Correct. It can go either way. So far, Ideation is the only show to move from sandbox to main stage. I think also it has something to do with scale. Some of the shows in the sandbox are just smaller pieces. 
two or three actors and simple settings and a simple story that wouldn't really quite hold in the big theater. So some of the sandboxes are not likely to move. Some others may well. Bill English, let's talk briefly about last season. Uh, The shows last season were Company, Dogfight, Stage Kiss, The Nether, Colossal, Red Velvet, and City of Angels. Last year we spoke and you said you were going to do some work to kind of make City of Angels ending a little bit better than on Broadway. You're still stuck with the fact that the show doesn't end, but what you did really did a good job of covering that fact. I was going to ask you because we talked about it last year. I, th- I think we made some good progress on the ending. The giant rewind and then and then having them do the last number as a quiet kind of heartfelt number rather than just a big showstopper. I think that the writer, the writer in the play, Stein, you know, wants to make it in Hollywood and he makes all the typical sellouts and and compromises and kind of starts to sell his soul. And then I think through his uh, interaction with his own leading character and through his wife and through the number of things that happened to him, he sort of eventually writes himself and tells the producer to shut it and takes his three-picture deal and leaves. So that's a story. I mean, it has an ending. It has an ending in the sense that he rejects he rejects Buddy. I think that the giant rewind or the what they did before is a kind of a, yes, it is a kind of a fantasy way of, of bringing that fact home, you know, that I think some people feel is a bit of a cop-out. That last rewind and getting that down, the timing had to be perfect. How hard did you guys work on that last? What happens is we come to a certain point and then we've seen a couple of rewinds of scenes before. But now The small rewinds that are actually in the script. Mm -hmm. This one just goes on for quite a while, rewinding an entire scene. Was this harder than the others? Oh, my God, yes. Yeah, it's a a 20-minute scene that we rewound. In other words, we ran it, the whole scene backwards, in less than a minute. Thanks to my brilliant stage manager, Tatjana Genser, um, who has just mind like steel trap, we were able to divide it into sections. There were eight sections and then just work each piece of rewind on its own and then put them all together and speed it up. And I think it, I think it worked out pretty well. It was a lot of fun to watch, I think. As symbolism goes, it did basically destroy the Hollywood of the play. It returned us to a bare stage with blank sheets of paper falling from the sky. So I think it had some sort of metaphorical meaning, you know. The other shows of the season, if I were to pick one that stood out for me, it would be The Nether. Now, in that play, were there any issues that came up that you didn't expect, or was that pretty much an easy one? I wouldn't describe it as an easy one. You know, it's a difficult show. It's a difficult subject matter, difficult to work on, difficult because you had two children that we had to work with in the context of this very difficult subject matter. I think scenically it was a big challenge to get the scenery to work and try to get really dead blackouts in the theater so that we really were completely surprised by the next shift. It's a fantastic script. I have to say when you have a script that good and you have great actors, you know, you just kind of try to get out of the way and let it happen. I felt with Stage Kiss, the play itself, 
seemed to peter out a little toward the end. The ending was not as strong as the earlier part of the play, but that may just be me. You know, to each their own. It gets a little strange and sort of metaphorical at the end, you know. When you look at last season, which do you think was the most successful play? I'm not going to ask you about the least, but the most. The one that you kind of look and go, hey, that's the one that really, that's SF Playhouse at its best. I'd say The Nether because The Nether fits with our tradition of doing edgy, challenging material that forces people to confront themselves and their society in ways that, that can provoke change or that can provoke debate. One thing about The Nether that made it stand out was that there was so much interest in talking about the play that we had to talk back every night after every show, which was attended by 75 to 150 people. I mean, people really wanted to talk about that play, and they stayed after to do that. I directed it. For me, definitely, that was a triumph of the season. Susie might say Stage Kiss, you know, because Stage Kiss was a big hit for us. But, you know, it's it's interesting because Stage Kiss and The Nether and City were the uh, box office successes of the season, but I thought Colossal was a was a terrific show and really fun to work on. And Dogfight, very good show, very good show. Well, the thing about Dogfight is that it was one of I think it was originally off Broadway. Mm-hmm. It was yeah, off off yeah, Broadway, a yeah. small off Broadway musical, mm-hmm. and those rarely get reproduced. They rarely go anyplace, so it's kind of nice to see. There haven't been a lot of productions of it. Bill English, let's look at the upcoming season. The next show that you have is a show I've never seen and I'm looking forward to. It's a musical from the 60s called She Loves Me based on The Shop Around the Corner, which was a 1940 film with James Stewart and Margaret Sullivan, became a movie. You've Got Mail. In the good old summertime. And then it became You've Got Mail. Yeah. But, of course, before it was Shop Around the Corner – it was a play, Parfumerie. And I actually got a copy of it recently because we want to see on its journey from Parfumerie through Shop Around the Corner, through Good Old Summertime to She Loves Me, what are the things that were left out or changed or you know, how can we learn more about its development? What is the setup again? Oh, it's about a couple of young people that work in a perfume store. They hate each other. They both join a Lonely Hearts Club and are corresponding with a mystery person who they've become attracted to through writing letters. Not long ago, I interviewed Barbara Cook, who was the star on Broadway. And one of the issues that we discussed was a song like Ice Cream, which is a key song in the show. I said it's kind of a comic song, and her response was that It doesn't matter if a song is comic or not. It always has to be played straight. For sure. Absolutely. you got to play it like you mean it. I, at least, and I know everyone at SF Playhouse, believes that the kind of comedy we like to do is comedy that comes from character and from circumstance and from the collision of opposites rather than comedy that's played for laughs. That's how you translate all of the shows is never an attempt to kind of like build it up. I noticed that in City of Angels, that the only way to get Gelbard across is to play it straight. Deadpan, yeah. Yeah, I call it Hawkeye humor, you know, because he, he wrote MASH, and that was his brand. Right. And I think it's also very much in keeping with the noir style, you know, the the, the sort of just the facts, ma'am. 
kind of monotone works great. And if you just let those lines just roll out across the floor, they get laughs. And it's the same thing with a show like She Loves Me as well, I would guess. I think so. I think so. She, uh, she Loves Me is a little more theatrical, a little more old-fashioned. You <laughs> definitely do have to play it for real, though. You know, we don't want it camped up. One of the issues about She Loves Me over the years is that it's one of those shows that has the great Bachhornick score, mm -hmm. and supposedly the libretto is not as strong as the score, which is why the show has not lasted on Broadway when it's been revived. I have not seen it. Is that true, or is that just kind of a myth? You know, I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's a great show. It, was, it just had a very successful revival on Broadway, yeah. Roundabout, and it got fantastic reviews. And you know, the, the Times are not quiet about saying this show is dated or this show would be best left unrevived, but all the critics in New York were, were glowing about this production of She Loves Me, which is kind of what encouraged me to go ahead and do it. Because when you read it, it does seem kind of old-fashioned, and you're not sure it's going to work in the 21st century, but it clearly does. Do you have your leads? Uh, yeah. We're going to have Jeffrey Adams and Monique Kaifen. They played opposite each other in Promises, Promises, and in City of Angels, actually. Yeah, he played Stein. He played Stein, yeah. The Christians by Lucas Nath. It's about a doctrinal dispute in an evangelical church. How did you find this? Um, I mean, it was in New York, and Isherwood loved it in New York, but what brought you to the Christians? Well, I actually saw the first production. The world premiere was in Louisville at the Humana Festival, and it was directed by Les Waters, who also directed the, the production of Playwrights Horizons that was reviewed by the Times. And I was just knocked out by it. I thought, this is such a great play. And it is a doctrinal dispute. I don't know whether I'd call it evangelical. It's kind of garden variety community church rather than being holy rollers pounding gavels and, you know, you know, and tearing out hair at the pulpit. This this minister is very mellow and friendly and he has an experience which uh, sort of shatters his view of the theology of Christianity, and he comes back from this experience to his church and announces that there's going to be a major shift in the kind of Christianity that they will practice there. And so it creates a tremendous schism in the church. He's basically saying there's not going to be any hell anymore. And so people are opposed to him. The People leave the church. There's a rebellion between him and the associate pastor. It's very interesting. It's kind of about what prophecy is and how belief affects what people do and how someone can believe in their own experience to the level that they believe so strongly that they can go out and change an entire religion kind of is a fascinating process to watch. And there's a full choir on stage? There is a full choir, yeah. There's a 16-voice choir that is on the on the stage, and they sing. And then they traipse out about halfway through the show to leave it to the actors to finish. From what I can tell, um, there are times with the large and deep stage of SF Playhouse where you can really take full advantage. And this seems to be one of those times, at least from the photos I saw of the New York production. You can actually make it feel as if you're in the church. Well, I think our width is more of a value than the depth. 
I think we can create this wide kind of modern community church, you know, with video screens above left and right and a choir loft and a cross and stained glass and stuff. It's going to be kind of fun. I'm working on the set, actually, as we speak. And you're directing it. I am. I am. Does it scare you a little bit as you begin to get ideas? Do I have the budget for this? Oh, absolutely. I always have to answer to the budget and to my boss. Because it seems like that one would be particularly, you could go really all out on that one. Actually, I think Christians is likely to be one of the more reasonable sets compared to sets which have moving pieces like She Loves Me or Lacage or it's a solitary set. It doesn't move. Don't have turntables and wagons, and that always helps keep the cost down. And then there's Noises Off. There's a fancy set there. That has to turn around. Noises Off. Years ago, I talked to Michael Frayne, who's the playwright. He said it's an interesting show because he once saw a version in the sticks or whatever you want to call them in Britain, and he said the timing was off and no one laughed through the entire show. It's a show that depends more than any other show I've ever seen on split-second timing. I think so. Well, Susie's directing it. Susie Damalano's directing it. And it's in. It's being cast right now. It isn't fully cast. Um, we're going to, you know, do a set that does what Noises Off does, which for those of you who don't know, in the first act, you're looking at this kind of English manor house with that has five or six doors, which, of course, is part of the farce. And then the second act... You come back from intermission, and all of a sudden you're looking at the back side of it. So you're backstage looking at the flats from the back, it's and you see what goes on backstage. And then in the third act, you're back front again, and you see what goes on in front, but with the awareness of the relationships between the performers and the directors, which you learned about in the second act. So it's quite a lot of fun. It's taking place not in a major theater, but in kind of a... A regional theater in England? I'd say so. A community theater. It's a community theater. So they aren't they aren't required to be good. Obviously you need very, very skilled actors to act badly. The play itself is a farce. It's got door slamming and people coming out without all their clothes and you know, a bunch of anchovies that get dropped on the floor that become a major plot element and doors slamming and people chasing cute girls in their underwear. It's it's like Who's where and who's hiding in which closet, hearing, overhearing. It's got the classic kind of farcical elements of what you would think of as a classic British farce. The switcheroo of turning it around is what gives noises off its unique quality. Otherwise, the, the play itself would probably not fully hold our attention. The next show is The Roommate, Bay Area premiere. By, it's by Jen Silverman from – that's also the Humana Festival. That's right. Different year, but um, the same festival, yeah, which where I saw it. And it's a wonderful play, a play about two middle-aged women, one of whom is a housewife in Iowa, and her husband has left her for the secretary, and her son is in New York and won't return her phone call. She's pretty lonely, has a big house, so she puts an ad on Craigslist for a roommate – and the, um, the second woman is the person who answers the ad. Needless to say, they are an odd match. And that's where the drama and the comedy come from. The collision of these two kind of lonely women, both of whom have estranged children and both of whom are kind of lost at this point in their life and what they learn from and how they affect each other. What I read is that it focuses on 
what it's like to be a middle-aged woman. Now. Now, yeah. Yeah. You know, you don't get a lot of plays that have parts for two women in their 50s, and this is a great one. And, of course, it's going to star uh, Susie Domilano and Julia Brothers, who have worked together before and love each other, and it's going to be a lot of fun to put them together on the stage again. Is Susie directing that one, too? No, we haven't picked a director yet, actually. Uh, it's hard to direct and be in the play. Most no one can do that. People direct films and are in them because you can always roll back and look at the dailies and edit the bad cuts. But it's hard to get any sense of perspective when you're on stage in your own production. I tried it once and swore I would never do it again. And indeed, I never did. What was the show? It was Chekhov's Three Sisters. And I was directing it to begin with, and about two weeks into rehearsal, the uh, actor playing Vershinen got some offer in Hollywood and split. And I just didn't know what I was going to do, but just take over the role myself. But it drove me completely crazy. And and how did it work in the end? Okay. It turned out all right. I actually probably couldn't really tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sort of have to rely on assistant director at that point or something. Yeah, I did. Our teacher, we were studying with Jean Shelton at the time, and it was in her theater, and she came and watched and gave notes. So I think it was probably okay, you know? <laughs> but you'd never do it at SF Play. Never. 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 Do you ever think about acting again? I do. I do think about acting. Not really right now. The artistic director won't pick any plays that have parts for me. The final play of the season is La Cage Faux. That's a musical. It's produced often. Why did you choose to do a musical that's been in the Bay Area frequently? Not frequently, I would say. There was a small production last year. I don't think there's been a major professional production in the Bay Area in a long time, 10, 20 years. I think it's interesting. We haven't done a play that really had strong gay themes, and I think it's high time we did, although there have been gay characters in plays that we presented. And I like the idea that in our time, in the wake of shows like Transparent and, you know, the interest in transsexual people that we're thinking of trying to open up the Cajels, who are, the, of course, the dancing team, dancing, singing team, to a wider variety of types of people. So we get a little more diversity even into Lacage than there has been in the past. Well, in the past, there's been men playing transvestites and women playing transvestites and actual women. Right. There had been just men dressed up as women and a woman, one woman, yeah, okay. dressed up as a woman, but we're not sure which is which. So I'm wondering if we can get some women who were formerly men and men who were formerly women and see how that affects the temperature of the piece. Are there a sufficient number of actors around who fit those? Well, that remains to be seen. We're just <laughs> actually, I'm going from here to our first audition for the Kaj. And we're not really bringing in any of the uh, Kajels. This, this we're casting for leading roles only right now. But we're definitely putting the call out, and I shall do so now, for people of. Uh, divergent lifestyles and people who think they might uh, fit into this this concept obviously have to be very, very good dancers and very, very good singers. And that's a bit of a challenge. Bill English, there's another show from the Sandbox we haven't mentioned next year, Zenith. What's that? Yeah, Zenith 
is our final show in the sandbox. It's by Kirsten Greenwich. It's a world premiere. We didn't commission it um, like we did You Mean to Do Me Harm and uh, Seared. It's another category of play which the sandbox can serve. The sandbox can serve our own world premiere commissions. The sandbox can serve people who are just getting their very first play produced, like Philip. This is a fairly established playwright who teaches playwriting in New England and has had shows off Broadway. Kirsten's Milk Like Sugar, I think, won an Obie for best play. But sometimes a play will just kind of not find a home. You know, in the major theaters, they're so expensive to produce, and maybe the play's a little odd or it's a little scares some artistic directors in the bigger houses, so it sort of sits on the shelf. And a couple of years go by, and it just doesn't get done. And a play like that can have great merit. And so I often reach out to the agents in New York, the major agencies, and I'll say, what have you got that deserves a production which just somehow hasn't gotten one, even if it isn't a beginning playwright? Or a commission. And this is, was sent to me by, uh, I think, Bruce Ostler. I read it and just thought it was a fabulous play. It's, a, it's based on a true story about a woman who drives her car down the wrong way on a freeway and ends up killing herself and everyone in the car and a few other people. And the play sort of tries to deconstruct the events leading up to the fateful drive to see how is it that this person got herself there because she was a successful woman. She was successful business-wise, and she had a family and children, husband. It was part of the community, so it was was particularly kind of baffling when people look to see how this event could have occurred. So it's a little like one of those Bridge on San Luis Rey stories. How did these people, how did these people get here? Bill English. The season, 17 to 18 season, I've been in touch with a couple of artistic directors who right now know that this is the time they need to put things, start to put things together for that season. And they were a little scared because of the upcoming presidential election and how that would play out in terms of the theater of the year after next. Is this something that is also affecting you? I don't know. Maybe it should be. I haven't thought about it, honestly. I think that theater is like the sixth estate. I mean, the theater can't really be um, worried about who's going to get elected. I mean, we're here to speak to the people about issues and questions that we think are important. I think that will always be the case. I don't know that, that I should try to anticipate who's going to get elected president. Well, I mean, if a certain person gets elected president and you have a sort of a rightish wing presidency, then we're still going to be living in a very liberal environment. You know, it's not like we're going to try to go out and change conservative points of view in San Francisco. I think it'd be more interesting for us to look inside the heart of people who are inclined to uh, vote very conservatively and and why it is that the us— us sort of, we think we're, you know, so cool on the West and East Coast, and we think we understand things we don't understand. What drives the decisions of people who feel very differently from us? And I think, in a way, that would be the most, the greatest use of, of theater is trying to get us to understand each other. Which comes back to your idea about theater as a place for empathy. 
Definitely. My job is to get the audience to identify with people who they might ordinarily not identify with or to identify with a part of themselves that they didn't recognize. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.